So when you divorce physics from power, you start to worship yourself. You start to worship humanity and you start to reject the limitations of, of God or of the laws of physics. And you think you've obtained the power of God, which is fiat itself, to speak things into existence. Correct. Like fiat lux, God said, let there be light, the world emerged. Humans don't have that ability. We can't fiat things into wow. existence. We have to work. Hey, everybody. This is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about Bitcoin, life, and the absurdity of the fiat world. Our guests don't necessarily get high with us, and you don't have to either. But it helps. Oh, I'm pretty sure I'm committed to going to Bitcoin Prague in June. Okay. So, just to put that on your guys' radar. Who's putting that one on? Uh, the guys I just had dinner with, they're um, Satoshi Labs, is that a Bitcoin Prague? Okay. Brains, two other big Bitcoin companies. Is Satoshi Labs, Trezor? Trezor. Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, I think they all, yeah, just, it'll be their second year, third year, but... I love Prague, and it's June. You know, it's like you have to put on a conference to like sort of become something now, right? Is that is that what the thing is is going on? Kinetic marketing. It's a nice balance to it's digital like if life. Can, if you can provide a physical experience, it's like Corey said. You throw the party. They don't remember every detail, but they remember who threw the party if they have a good time. That's man. That's so important. Right. That's wise. And I think people watched the rise of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin conference in Miami go from 2,000 to mm -hmm. 10,000 to 30,000. Like, okay, there's enormous demand. Yeah. And that's how, that's how you go from zero to known, right? If you are there, how many people show up to the conference and then they get a job from that or if it's a company or a brand that yep. gets exposure there for the first time. I met Corey at Bitcoin 2019 and then, you know, six months later, I'm working at Swan. Yeah, I, I showed up to the, the Swan Dome in 2021, and the first job I applied for when I got back was Swan. There you go. Yeah, and then Bitcoiner Jobs just is the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Right. Create a job board, and then we have unlimited talent trying to work for us. What, what is Below market rate. Swan? I like sort of believe in it a lot more than a lot of other countries. And I'm sort of scared that they do. I feel the same. I'm extremely bullish after Monday. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. The team is stacked. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's true. The new new hires also are like leveling up like big boy companies. Because entrepreneurs have missions. Their their product is their mission. Their whatever they're producing is their mission. But the people yeah. that work for them are labor in many instances, like in a factory. But if you're all a part of that mission, it's a different uh, it's a different vibe. But, and we all went to this uh, we all went to that swan party, right? In Miami, right? Yeah, with the seafood in the rooftop. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had this image about this party that it was going to be a failure. I don't know why. I just felt like no one had it together. It was not going to be a thing. I was like, what is this swan party they want to put on? And I went to that party and I was like, that's one of the best goddamn parties I've been to. It was a good party. It was so much fun. It was just like intimate. It was not too intimate. Like it was wild, but then it got more intimate. Just like really, really. So you're a skeptical. Hmm. I, I don't know if you felt that way. But I had a great time at that party, yeah. I thought it was just a very nice... So you're a skeptic until you have 
an experience that changes your mind. Of course. You don't, you, the, the story being told to you or the, um, you know, the list of reasons why you should do something, that doesn't impress you until you experience it yourself. I'm fascinated by this idea of throwing a good party to cement your logo in the minds of the participants. Oh, that's interesting. In a way that even though they forget the party, they remember you. It's almost like, like a literal logo or like, logo. well, they remember who threw the party, right? Yeah, sure. it's imprinted. The yeah, swan yeah. party of X year, for the instance. En- more the entity or the brand rather than the literal logo. Right, which yeah. ultimately, you know, I'm saying you're right. Yeah, logo, yeah. I'm saying as in lo- the logos. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You're competing for territory in the human imagination, yes. ultimately. Or recollection, I guess, in this case. I wish I wouldn't have brought it up now. <laughs> it's the most complicated fucking it's, thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a meme. It's the. No, it's the medium of exchange of meaning. Right. Medium of exchange of meaning. It was one like one way to say it. They're literally defining a word, which the logos is the word. It's also. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Related to ratio, right? It means the word or ratio, so it's related to rationality. So ah, it's so something that's so always comparative. Intermingling of, uh, what's that, epitomology or epistemology? What's the etymology? Etymology. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it's tracing the linguistic history of the word. And it's, you're ah. talking about, when you talk about the word, you're describing water to the fish that's never broken the surface because we all live in language all the time. Right, 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 yeah. right, right, right. So, so it's tricky. <laughs> so the logos is like the intermediary or the transition point between reality and then our symbolism, which we, int- we use to communicate about reality. Yeah, we have perceptions that we convert into conceptions. Yeah. And then we transmit those conceptions with one another verbally. Like I mean, as good just, as we can, just look like the tongue. What did John Dravicki say about the tongue? It's a sensitive organ that's designed to detect poison. So you have very sensitive yep. organs, to, <laughs> and it's flexible to block airflow. I forgot what the reason for that is, but it basically biology exapted the tongue for speech. So it was good at tasting poison. You need a flexible organ to block airflow selectively for speech. Okay. Yep. And so it's not like we evolved for speech. It just happened that we evolved these features that we could exapt and repurpose for speech. And that's what biology did. Yeah. And then you start going, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. Evolution did, sorry. And then selective pressures would give the people who could speak ooh, ooh, ah, ah better. Mm-hmm. They're going to reproduce more because there's an advantage yes. to What's be able it? to speak. Is it the articulation imagine if you were in a tribe and you were the only one who could speak and you could just stand up on the stump and give a speech and poison say i'm going to poison. war with the other team right. you're the fucking god right right it's a technology it's a tool massive technology psychotechnology as verveki would say yeah that back, dude's mind-blowing and back to the point where you made about this our symbols our brands our our logos but like the physical That's logo totally but that encapsulates all of that idea into one. Like what is more powerful than a flag, a national flag? How much history, how much mm-hmm. culture, how much you know, ideology is captured by a single flag? And how your perspective of that culture, that ideology, that brand changes based on which flag you fly, your, your flag in relation to that flag, yep. right? So there's so much more to the words, there's so much more to the symbol that is 
going ideating through your mind and capturing that all in a single symbol and actually being able to capture an experience. So you're throwing a party and everybody remembers it was the, the, the flag bearer, or the symbol bearer who, who threw that party. But it's much more than what you right. can communicate or you can symbolize. But that existence of that so much more exists, doesn't exist in the physical world. It's in the, the ether, right? I feel like there's something weird about symbols though, in that like a symbol doesn't have, a def- not all symbols have a defined meaning. Like the Bitcoin symbol, the, the, the flag of the United States, like it means something different to everyone. It might approximately mean something similar for all those people, but like there's no standardization across the board. consensus. Yeah. It's like the word God. What does God mean? It means how many, how many people are on earth? That's how many definitions of God mm-hmm. there are on earth. It's, I think that's the, the feature, not the bug that it, it, it's vague enough. It's ambiguous enough for you to project your own ideals onto. Yeah. I think the most powerful ideas are in a way mirrors for the people observing them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause then you put yourself into it. You identify with it more. It gives you something you care about it more. People don't feel as passionate about a table, for example, because it's a functional thing. We have a pretty straightforward relationship with it. But a more abstract concept, there's much more surface area to grapple with and reflection points. Think about Bitcoin. It is a very well-defined technology. There's the white paper. There's the the code base. uh, There's the consensus. But if I asked anybody this weekend at uh, Pacific Bitcoin what Bitcoin means to them, almost none of them are going to define it by the white paper or the code. Correct. So even with the well-defined meaning, it's still you're projecting your values, your political ideology, your family values onto this in a certain way and how you use it. And it's like you said earlier, the tools we use, it's like a symbiotic relationship. It, we use Bitcoin. It changes us over time in the way we use it and the way we're able to use it to change our lives. Correct. Yeah. And to back up on that argument, essentially, Humans create tools, a hammer, fire, cooking, the internet, cheese knife. knife. (laughs) And that tool then opens up new paths for us to take as humans. We have new evolutionary pressures. And then we actually change with the invention of that tool. Um, And then we're new people, create new tools, new tools, new people in a spiral of symbiosis. I think some of that, where we liberate our free time, by increasing our productivity just with physical tools. Yep. It's actually opening up more of that leisure time where we experiment and play with things like language and yeah. and a lot of that leads to evolution not evolution, innovation. Yep. Right? Actually even psychotechnological innovation, dialogue, what we're doing right now. Right? People thinking out loud, or we're each just a neuron in the network we engage in this emergent property of dialogue that produces more truth or discovers more truth than we could on our own. Yeah. So when you create a physical tool that allows people to have more free time, they then get to engage in that collective dialogical circuitry thing. And that creates more ideas. Yes. And then you start implementing those ideas to get better tools. And it like, you're, it's a bootstrapping process. And it's so we're kind of co-evolving like our, our, the software we're running is co-evolving with the hardware that we're using, I guess you might say. Exactly. Which is a trip. Uh, yeah. It is crazy. a trip. The connection between dialogue and currency. Or is there a connection? Hmm. Both are 
forms of communication. Both are exchanging information. Ideas are, every idea is different, whereas currency is at least supposed to be a fungible unit of information for exchange. Um, but that's a good question of how did, how did currency evolve? Because it's every culture used or every society used a form of money, a form of currency. And it kind of emerged, uh, at least from the way I understand it, it emerged naturally, organically. So is that technology something we create or something we discover? I think, um, so, I don't recall the exact question, but how is currency related to... Is there a relationship between currency and dialogue? Dialogue. So the question I wanted to answer, though, is the relationship between prices and the logos, which is close, but not exactly the same. Um, but prices are exchange ratios between goods. Okay. Uh, right? Yeah. We said earlier, the logos means word or ratio closely related to rationality. I often think about this too, when we speak in language, it's, there's a rough consensus on the meaning of a word, but the real meaning of what I'm saying is between the words. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, there's the Yes. emergent property of meaning from the way I arrange the words. Mm -hmm. So you get logos and language that way, but I think there's also a logos in the pricing system where you're comparing two goods. That's the exchange ratio. This many apples or this many oranges, etc. But we data compress that into money, into the money denominated okay. price. So it's an acceleration of the logos of human act. Like if words are the medium of exchange for meaning, then money is more like the medium of exchange for action. Okay. It's like what actually happened. Wow. Yep, yep. Right, this is the results of what actually happened. Here who has, actually has the gold or the Bitcoin. And, and you can't really cheat it. And you can you in like micro it. examples, but on net, work was done in, in relation to that value. That was and crazy. ultimately, I think the pricing system is more important than telecommunications even. And that's fucking saying something because telecommunications are pretty goddamn important. I mean, granted, yeah. they're intertwined and I don't know that you can neatly disentangle I think them like pricing is a prerequisite for any complex emergent society. How do, you, how do you have a global society without prices? I think pricing drives more human action than words. I would say that per capita. Okay, you might be right. There are instances where um, scientists have found monkeys that have practiced prostitution. Like male monkey brings banana to female monkey for sex. Uh, they don't have language in the way that we have language, but they've established a price, and that has driven a behavior. Mm, very interesting. I mean, maybe monkeys do have some sort of language, but it's not well, nearly it's as complex. It's even more primal than language. Yeah, well, that's interesting. They definitely send tremendous amounts of information to each other. Mm -hmm. They're social, just like we are. They just don't verbalize things. I groom you, which means I submit to you, or I like you, I respect you. I, you know. Who do I share my food with? I, I got meat. Most primates love meat. Usually only the men get it. Mm -hmm. Who am I sharing the meat with? You know, am I sucking up to you to get a little bit of that meat? Yeah. This is very complex. I think it's a good point though that the economics is primary, I think, to language. Like they're engaging in that type of trading behavior way before they're talking. Correct. That's, that's interesting. It goes back billions of years before monkeys if you want to go here. If we, the recent study of mycelium is that they look underground and they see trade networks. They see mycelium mining resources, hoarding water, waiting for a drought, and then selling it for inflated prices when the trees are desperate. 
And it's a whole economic arrangement wow. underground. And you can see trade partners. You can see like, like all the typical, like, you know, trade policies change over here. And it's fundamental. We, we think of these as like human behaviors, but maybe they're, they're mycelial behaviors that we have just retained throughout thousands, millions of yeah. years. Or maybe even before the mycelium, right? That's a hard organism to study, but there's smaller things that are even harder to study that we're nowhere near studying. So it's universal praxeology. It could it's be from the very bottom. all the way down. Yeah. But not human, obviously. Action Once again, we, we had this egocentrism about us, yeah. as we so often do. Yeah, species-centrism. Like geocentrism was our original egocentrism. We are the center of the solar system. <laughs> yep. The sun revolves around us. We're like, oh shit, no, wait a minute. It's the exact opposite of that. We better burn Bruno for even bringing it up. I talked about that today that, so to describe how theory shapes how you see when you think that we thought for a long time that the sun is actually rising and actually falling, right? That's how the theory, we observe it and we apply our theory and that's how we get the meaning. But then once the Copernicus, Copernicus emerges and says, no, your theory is exactly fucking backwards. Actually, that's basically stationary and you're going around the sun. The same... Empirical <laughs> observation, like none of the data changed, just the way we interpreted the Correct. data changed. But it literally drew the opposite conclusion. And it's so interesting to me that that, that is how theory determines how we see. It doesn't determine what we see, but it determines how we see it. And that is such a, like, when we talk about the frame problem and how we frame things, it's yep. we're literally determining how we interpret the data. People think, I guess, theory emerges from empirical data, but it's kind of... They're symbiotic. Inverse. Yeah, they're symbiotic. Yeah. Think about religion, for example. If you are in a primitive society, hunter-gatherer religion versus, let's say, a modern Christian or a modern atheist, you see the world entirely different. If you're a, a tribal person, the, the mountain is literally your god, and when it rains, it means your crops grow. So the way you see the world, the way you interpret the weather, everything is related to your frame, which has nothing to do with how we... If we go out in the woods, we don't see anything like that. Right, Eskimos have 20 words for snow, for another example. Yeah, think about if you grew up or your culture before modernity was the, the Brazilian rainforest. The god or the predator was the panther or the, the animal of prey that you, if you went out into the jungle without, uh, without numbers, without a weapon, you would be taken away by you know, a panther. Yep. If you lived in, um, in Africa, Ra, God, was the sun. because that was what was powering everything. It was it was the heat. It was the energy. It was how your you know were your crops gonna survive? Was there gonna be a drought? If you lived in Norway, you were a Viking. It was um, it was the ice god. Something to do with that element. So what God <coughs> what God represents through time and through culture is what man at this time can't conquer. It's yes. what is what we have to we feel submissive to or something we have to overcome. Right. The all-powerful. Right. The all-powerful. Yeah. So what is God, what do people consider God today? Class, well, uh, liberalism, capitalism, democracy. Europe's going to find out that God is the absence of energy or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's almost a restatement of value being the, all action being an expression of value. So it's whatever people value, whatever they're putting highest in that hierarchy collectively is their God. 
Um, and that word, I like been thinking a lot about that word power recently too, because even when we describe God, you say like higher power or all powerful. And even when people like Peterson, especially when people like Peterson use the word power, they're always invoking the political meaning of it, as in the power some people have over others, the authority in a hierarchy. All that's the only definition of it they use. Yep. And they're completely throwing out the physics definition of power, which is so fundamental and so important to innovation and biology and all these things we're talking about. And that bothers the fuck out of me. I aren't they, be like, aren't you know, they the we, same though? Like no. in effect, let me, I, I know they're not like in that sense, but like they're different forms of potential energy almost. Like they are, but one is based on our imaginal normative structures, right? Mm -hmm. That we inhabit. That Joe Biden is your president. He has some power over you, mm -hmm. right? That exists in our imagination. Whereas physical power is very rooted in physical reality. Like, but watts it, over time it doesn't go back to like the same like it's like fiat money though like fiat money doesn't have power over you except in that like the government can compel you to use it like joe biden could use i guess you're saying more that like these structures are imaginary that they don't really exist and so it's something like we're agreeing to let this man have power i'm saying there's a difference between political and physical power and everyone keeps using the word power as the only there's like there's one form of power in the world and they only mean political power, and they completely throw out physics. Like they're not, like physics has just been fucking tossed aside. Like we're talking about Carl Jung and political power and fucking Dostoevsky. I don't mean to make fun of Peterson, I'm just picking on the guy that I listen to a lot. But you are omitting physics from your worldview, and that doesn't work for me, because the reason we do make institutions, the reason we do engage in innovation, the reason we have the division of labor, is to harness more physical power per unit of human effort. That's the entire fucking point. That's the definition of wealth, really. Question, is it it's not? The Kardashev scale. More energy moved per unit yeah. of time is a higher civilization. You can't throw that out of your fucking discussion. <laughs> Question, is it not more expedient to just harness political power rather than harnessing physical power? Depends how profitable it is to violate property. I think, it's, I think clearly the incentive is to collect political power, because then you can do whatever you want. You in the fiat world, yes. You can acquire physical power very easily if you have political power, mm. right? The money printer is just the most powerful source of political power imaginable. Mm -hmm. So the wealthy, the connected, the elites, they because it's divorced from physics, steal that machine and they command reality versus compete, compete in the real world where power, physical power matters. I, I slightly disagree with what you said where it's divorced from physics because the person that controls the money printer or controls the money controls the energy. He who controls the energy controls the power. So what does the United what does Joe Biden have behind him? He's got the US military, he's got the US infrastructure, the petrodollar. He controls the energy. He controls the, the power plants that create the electricity, that create the power of the factories. So in a sense, maybe political power is just an abstraction away from who controls energy production and the, and the channeling of that energy towards oppression, towards production, towards war, towards anything. What I'm agreed, what I am saying is that because fiat currency itself, the production of it is divorced from physics. There's zero proof of work to produce new unit of fiat currency. Therefore, it is a maximal tool of political power. It has no physical constraints on it whatsoever.
whereas gold and Bitcoin have physical constraints, they are more depoliticized or apolitical monies. I would have loved to see your reaction so that's, to um, Vitalik's statements about mm. not, like getting rid of the laws of physics. Oh, I did an episode with Lowry on that. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Lowry annihilated it. That was a good podcast. Yeah. But to tie into... Episode 6, Lowry series. He crushed it. Must watch. To go to that point, though, it ties right back to what we were previously talking about, which is that the frame that we live in uh, influences how we see the world. Yes. Because we're in a fiat world, which is political, we only see yes. power as Thank one you. thing. It's a low-resolution framing. Correct. And it's also that omits the water. physics for fuck's sake. Like, yeah. I'm like, when you it's kick the water physics, we swim in. Yes, right. You're you're anno- you're so annoyed by it because everyone is swimming in the water, and you just poked your head up, and you go, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love physics too. <laughs> and what uh, what is a what is a common theme in these fiat political cultures? Um, secular secular society secular humanism it is like the rejection of the limits of the universe it's the rejection of a broader definition of god we can overcome anything we control the money we can create renewable energy with solar panels and wind and we you know that will power everything And you think you've obtained the power of God, which is fiat itself, to speak things into existence. Mm-hmm. Like fiat lux, God said, let there be so light. So we divorce physics from Humans power. don't have that ability. You we can't fiat things into existence. We have to work. To worship humanity. When we divorce ourselves from work, when we play God, we play of, ourselves. Of God or of the laws of physics. So when we think, when we come up with ideas, when we pull from the ether and we create new realities from our thoughts, Yes, that is possible, only backed by work. It cannot be backed by low interest rates and just pumping money into companies and hoping something sticks. It has to be backed by value created from work. Just to dig a little deeper on that point, low interest rates, pumping money into companies like zombie companies, all of these things are only possible with the theft of taxation and inflation. So it's like getting theft out of this whole organism, collective organism that we are is how we cure the pathology. I don't think there's any fucking other way to do it. And then the word power would no longer have as much meaning in the political sense because there's Because we'd be building starships. Like, politics. Power would go back to the power plants. This, the starship has 16 solar power engine and now it goes into hyperdrive because we got rid of fiat finally. Yep. And we got Bitcoin and we built some fucking real gear. So power will go back into the power plants. Well, why, why do you think that the government, the EU, the WEF, why do you think they're so set on destroying the hydrocarbon industry? Because that is real power. If, if Exxon, if Chevron, if BP, if Conoco, if they are producing energy, selling energy, they are creating the real value in the world. And the, value, and the power moves back towards that that physics that that's tied to reality the laws of god and the government loses power they lose that influence because they're not the ones producing value for society any longer i think it's darker than that i think it's more like the leaders view themselves as the smartest and most capable among us 
and that no cost is too great to do whatever their vision of the future is. Their vision of the future is less people, surveillance state, they're the kingmakers, and we need to just not hurt our planet. And it doesn't really matter what the sheep do because they're always irrelevant. And so they enact policies that have high costs, but potentially could be a rational outcome for our species. I think they genuinely believe this is the right thing to do, which is change society dramatically, less people, and yeah, they see themselves as heroes and we're expendable. They, That's they how I like see it. The government or like? Uh, no, I would say just generally a lot of people fit this archetype. They might find themselves in government, they might find themselves at the EU, the World Economic Forum, a bank, Anywhere with purchase or leverage on society, I think that pathology exists, and I think it, a lot of it, a lot of it is related to Malthusianism, which is that too many, you know, if you have an environment with a bunch of deer, and then you 10x the deer population, what happens? They eat all the food, and then the whole population collapses. And in biological systems, this is generally true. They don't have a governing mechanism. Um, they grow and then they die. They grow and they die. And so Thomas Malthus, an economist, said, look at humans, we're growing too fast, we're going to hit our carrying capacity, and then we're going to die. And then what happened? Well, we had the Industrial Revolution. We figured out how to turn from 50% of the people into farmers to 2% of the people into farmers. We figured out fertilizer. We figured out how to create more power, more water. Essentially, we use technology to expand our carrying capacity based on our needs. Animals don't do that because they don't have technology. Um, we, we found, and I think that idea forms of energy. Bingo! But that's what the Malthusians miss, mm -hmm. and they arrogantly think they can central plan their themselves out of the situation, which is fatal conceit, not possible hubris. And the the idea you said, who is we, or who is they? Who's they? They is us. We have everyone has the choice, or they have the. Um, they could be influenced to follow the self-worship that we can overcome everything just because we speak it and make it so. And that's like, this, you know, in China, who is the oppressor in China? Well, that depends on your perspective at any given point in time. If you're standing there while they're dragging someone off to a isolation camp and you do nothing, well, then you're the oppressor. And when it's your turn to be dragged off, you're the oppressed, but it's that moment in time is what defines you. Everything in everything that exists, anything that happens is an event in time. It is not a, a static object. So they, they is us if we don't govern ourselves. Makes me think of the Solzhenitsyan heart line, right? The line between good and evil that cuts down the heart of every person. Um, is that a, what is that? That's what just what he says. This is the line between good and evil cuts down the heart of every man. But what it means is that man can be good or bad based mm -hmm. on our actions. Right? We like, all have the potential within us. Yeah. We all, if you don't know that you have the potential within you, you're not being honest with yourself, I don't think. Okay. Haven't we all done something wrong or regretted? Maybe not all evil, but again, these are all just subjective delineations on a continuum right like i don't know it's the story of the two wolves it's the story of the two yeah. wolves right yeah. which one it's do you feed exactly the story of the two wolves I'm, con I'm convinced of oh, the two wolves well there's two wolves inside you which one you feed is the one that uh yeah there's a good, there's one, a good wolf a there's a bad wolf yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
The grass is greenest where you water it kind of right. thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't heard that one, but... Peterson, <laughs> yeah. Peterson explains that well with the Nazis. He, his class yes. there, he explains it, and he's like, here's all the bad things the Nazis do. How many of you think that you're capable of this? Nobody raises their hand. Mm. And then he systematically breaks that down. Yeah. Okay, well, started here, then it started here, then your family's going to die, then you mm. don't have food, then you have no choice. It starts to be rational here at a certain point, and yeah. good people do, quote, bad things. Yeah. Or yeah. your, your idea of yourself as good or evil is an idea in your mind. But until you're forced to take action, it's just potential. It's not, uh, it's not the reality of who you are. Your reality of who you are is defined by your actions. Until you're forced to navigate real trade-offs in a real world, right, where there's real consequences you don't know. He, is, he cites that book, um, Ordinary Men, where it describes people yeah. joining the Nazi army essentially and they start out as school teachers and step by step they end up dragging pregnant women out into a field and shooting them like it it's horrendous um but i i assert i guess i don't know i would love to hear what you guys have to say about this but i think that one of the most significant influences on the the solzhenitsyn and heartline right which way it goes is it good or is it evil seems to be material incentives. Like we can't change the line, we can't change people's natural good and evil tendencies, but we can design better incentive systems that hopefully pull the heart line away from evil and towards good. Yep. Seems to be pretty reasonable and... On average, for sure. So, yeah, I, don't, I guess I just wanted to offer that up as like, the importance of incentives? I don't know. It's not talked. We talk about it a lot in Bitcoin, but I don't know. The rest of the world's not fucking talking about it. They no. just, it's like voting and politically arguing. Like these activities that go nowhere. You just keep going in the same fucking circle and the scheme keeps being perpetrated. Can we talk about something more fundamental like actually moving the needle on good and evil? Right. The saying, put your money where your mouth is. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to trade off for your ideas? What are you willing to spend? How much work are you willing to put in? Your incentives inform that. But how do we, how do we direct those incentives as a, as a society to kind of capture or to hijack that greed mechanism or that self-interest mechanism where you are still benefiting yourself through your actions but it is still beneficial to the to the broader society. Yeah, we, we sort of live in a political discourse that's, you know, first order effects. It's just the most gross, pointless conversation. If we want to change something at first order, and we don't think about second, third, and fourth order, we're just throwing shit at the wall, right? And to incentives, it's like small changes at the very bottom of the socio stack. That is what drives enormous outsized impact. So it's like micro changes at the bottom, butterfly effect out. And yeah, if we believe that our incentives steer our morality, then that's about as important of a thing we could do as a species is make tiny tweaks at the bottom of the stack. Before we started recording, um, something you said was how silly is it or how strange is it that uh, people decided to start creating laws? I think that they're, you know, yeah. So the is the, are those laws the attempt to direct energy, to direct uh, productivity? Is it 
to they're write incentive those structures. To point us towards of course they are. Yeah. Of course they are. Of course they are. And so this is so interesting too. All right. David Hume said you cannot get an ought from an is, right? The classic divide of morality and materialist objective reality. There's nothing about reality you can tell me, a description you can tell me, that gives me a prescription for action. This is how I should deal with it, right? This is always subjective. It's moral, right? It's, you can't get an ought from an is. Okay, but Bitcoin proof of work. Bitcoin is rooted in physics through the expenditure of energy and proof of work mining to secure the perfect integrity of its supply of 21 million. Right? Correct. Okay. Bitcoin is a brand new incentive system that dissuades people from stealing because it makes it more expensive and or impossible in the case of inflation. Therefore, lowering the time preference of individuals that engage with it, which is equivalent to saying it improves their morality. So do we, so do we have something that's rooted in physics to establish its physical integrity, physical integrity, supply integrity, that then through incentives uh, hardens our moral integrity as a result? And if so, is that an is? That becomes an ought. So, um, there one, one, one line. It yeah. increases the cost of cheating, which... And stealing, I would say, with yeah. no inflation. Yeah, yeah, which would incentivize you to play by the rules and create value more. That's yes. the tiny little shift that on yeah. balance makes a big difference. So there is um, no objective morality, right or wrong, justice or virtue, what, except for what you can enforce. So if you have, or putting in the most work, the most energy towards enforcing your values and your goals or your, your virtues, is that not similar to the proof of work chain where the next block of information, the next step into the future is enforced by the miners or whoever who's putting in the most work and the most energy, the longest chain, the most proof of work, that is what is true. Just in society, whoever controls what is considered true, what is considered law, what is considered virtue, is whoever puts in the most work to enforce it. And whoever's going to put in that work to enforce it, that is the, you know, anybody can put forth or posit virtue, what is truth, but who's willing to actually work to enforce that? Meaning to retain our history? To retain our history, to retain our traditions and to build upon it. Yeah. Orwell said, he who owns the past owns the future. Right. Right. So it's like, how do we maintain a cohesive line of history that we generally have consensus on? It's not going to be perfect fidelity, but we want to retain good ideas and not let pathology sneak in so we can build on these forever. Right. And I think the time chain look at Bitcoin is essentially saying that this is the best way we have to preserve history. We preserve a ledger through proof of work. And beyond money, right, like uh, Peter Todd's idea of imprinting data hash into the blockchain at a certain time, where it's like, I tweeted this at block 6,000 or whatever. Um, does that actually, in 100 years or 1,000 years from now, does that not become our like history that we then hash into 
and we have like layers of like lightning la lightning network off of the history book layer where it's like pretty pretty good fidelity and you might have like layer three history that's not as reality not as like durable or like true but it's like some perspective on reality but the closer you get to the chain the more like hardened facts they might be or at least the more we should assume that they are true it's also kind of a form of immortality like human beings forever know we're going to die try to leave our imprint on the world through the pyramids through tombs through writing books through all these different things bitcoin i think is one of the first things where anybody no matter who you are can achieve some form of immortality by inscribing something on the blockchain. Yeah, does that like, call to us deeply in a way that we don't even notice? I think it like maybe we, we're, we're desiring. We're all desiring immortality. That's what biology, in a way, kind of does. We're, right? We were constantly fighting entropy, and Bitcoin is our way to to fight the entropic forces of the universe. Do you think to create order in the chaos? Recording fights entropy. Say again. That what does capture recording? Uh, recording. Mm. You mean like a podcast, anything? Just yes. Well, then you can boil that down to mm. language, couldn't you? Like well, Simeon yeah. well, right? Right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, it, it lets you revisit a moment in the past. The <laughs> Could be. I, mean, it's... <laughs> I don't think it overcomes entropy. I think that it. Every the, the, Rovelli, like we keep bringing him up. There is no difference between the past and the future except for how we perceive each individual configuration but there are we, we can't see the future because it's a configuration that we have there, there is no we don't recognize it and maybe deja vu is just a trace of the past that occurs in the future that you know we, we recognize a configuration but there's traces from the past and you're capturing using you're using a lot of energy to to, to record anything you're capturing those traces of the past and keeping those in a configuration that is, uh, you can go back and relive it. But you're not. But is it fighting entropy, maybe? Or is it creating entropy? It's not creating. It's uh, it, it's it's per, it's by preserving. Creating, by you're using energy to over. You have to. You know, no. What's that? I think by, it would be a negative entropy. You know, I heard um, energy described as useful energy. And entropy described as a useless energy. Interesting. And I thought That's that was great. a fucking trip because right. entropy is disorder and chaos. It's yeah. not but, usable. Well, there's also this objective aspect to entropy, which is the thermodynamic equations for entropy. But then there's the subjective aspect of entropy, which is uncertainty. And many authors make equivalence between entropy and uncertainty. So it's one of these terms that crosses the subject object divide that. I think humans just scarcely understand at this point. That's a good definition, too, to think about. Because you can boil that down into a lot of different segments and concepts, right? Like, you can boil that down to economics. You can mm -hmm. boil that down to, like, trash. Mm -hmm. Useless energy. Yeah, eating and shitting. Trash, right. I thought about a fly. I was like, can a fly eat its own shit? If so, it's like a perpetual motion machine. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a smaller fly. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. it. There's a poem People drink their own piss. That's a common, well, relatively too common. It's all right, bro. You can do whatever you want. We won't judge you. You know about the reindeer shaman, right? The oh, yeah. Tell us about the reindeer shaman. So there's a famous anthropology study in Siberia where they had natives there that would associate with the reindeer. So like in North American plains, we had the plains Indians who 
followed the buffalo, everything was eaten from them, made from them. Same thing in Siberia, but reindeer. And in that part of the world, they found uh, a specific red and white mushroom, the fly agaric. Or Amanita muscaria, muscaria. The emoji really mushroom. Is. They found out that if you eat the mushroom, you get super high. Um, but it also creates a lot of body load. You might vomit. It's, it's a very harsh physical experience. So it's not so recreational, but it could be still spiritual or whatever. Ceremonial. And then they found out that if they feed the reindeer the mushrooms, you can picture like Hank was like, ha ha, I got, you know, I got the reindeer high with the mushrooms. And then they found out that if you catch the piss from the reindeer who ate the mushrooms and you drink that, then the humans get high and there's none of the negative side effects. Imagine the first guy who, who got dared to try that. Um, turns out it becomes part of their culture and then they just, you know, pass the drug through the reindeer's kidneys, filter it, drink it, get high. Um, now, it gets even weirder because this tribe has a lot of traditions that are similar to our Christmas traditions. These people lived in little underground huts. It's very cold, windy underground huts. They came in through the chimney. They found these red and white mushrooms underneath the pine trees, so little presents under the Christmas tree. When you pick them fresh, you hang them in a sock over the hearth to dry out the mushrooms so you preserve them like our stockings. Um, Maybe Santa Claus, red and white, the mushroom guy, flew around on reindeer giving everyone mushrooms, little presents. Sounds pretty familiar. <laughs> wow. I mean, like You've tried guy. reindeer piss. Wait till you try Santa piss. <laughs> <laughs> that shit will knock you. Tastes like chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like Mario's mushroom, right? Mm -hmm. So the digitization of, of that sort of, what does that represent? Something that we need to... Hold on to maybe I don't know why is they well when he when, when Mario gets the red mushroom right he, he powers up, up. yeah yep. power what, what is that representing I don't know, I, I don't know. what get, gaining more power right overcoming little, entropy and what it, gonna go deal with Bowser's in fact, big it's a, it's princess stealing ass <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right like the, this toxic the dragon masculinity it's slaying the dragon right yeah entropy only increases in a system alone but outside energy can come in and overcome entropy. So the mushroom is some sort of idea or a mental upgrade. Mm -hmm. Or like capturing some sort oh, of, nice, yeah. Nice. I, I don't know if we're actually capturing energy. But, upgrade, so like well, there's other types of yeah, mushrooms, yeah, yeah. but that exactly. is the most symbolic. The right. I have a question about mushrooms. So if I've heard this theory Directed at everyone, but also going to throw it at Brandon. Uh, is it possible, because obviously when you do psilocybin, you feel like you're getting a download of some wisdom occasionally. It's almost like there's a spirit of another being there. Mm -hmm. Often, like in the group, everyone will laugh at the same time, then they'll get down, whatever. There's a spirit. In... Is it possible that that's an organism communicating to us that's much more ancient than we are, and that it's trying to maybe establish some symbiotic relationship with us? It's certainly a uh, line of thought that a lot of people have fleshed out and a lot of people believe. I think at first, at least in modern times, I think it traces back to Gaia hypothesis, which is that like the earth itself is alive. The, eco the forest is alive because you could view it as an ecosystem. If so, the earth is one ecosystem. Weather, oceans, right? It's just much more macro. We're ecosystems. We are. Got Most of our cells are yeah. not human. Yeah. yeah. And so through that sort of lens, you could say, what does this uh, ancient organism do? 
right? It creates psilocybin, which is a molecule that's almost identical to serotonin. It's so similar that our neuroreceptors that catch serotonin simultaneously catch psilocybin, and that transition from one to the other is what causes the effects. And then you can say, what does that do to humans? Well, it usually makes us uh, a lot more into nature, um, a lot better humans, a lot more connected to the grander planet, right? These are like pro-social, pro-environment outcomes that bring out the best in most people on average. So through that lens, it would seem that if this is true, then the mushroom is making us better stewards of the planet, right? Which makes the mushroom's life better and all the other organisms. And then, then you look at psilocybin is curious. It seems to follow humans around. It goes in places where the path is, right? Mushrooms don't go in the middle of nowhere. They like to go where the humans walk and they break a stick, which exposes surface area, which then the mycelium comes. Right, so those edges. So wherever we go, the mushrooms literally follow us. And like wood chips outside of a police station, really common place for psilocybin to grow. Um, the wood chips, there it is. And it's just sort of ironic. And it, it seems to follow humans. Now, if we invert that way back when, when, when we left the African savanna, right? We left the trees, we started walking around, we had fire, we're following the ungulates across the plains and the ungulates poop, right? The buffalo, the deer, whatever. Out of the poop comes the, the mushrooms. You're starving, big, bodacious mushroom. You try it, okay? Um, you have some food. You meet God. Your eyesight's better. Empathy you know, increases. All these things. And so we're essentially following the mushroom at that point as we follow the, the animal. Um, and so I don't really have a strong opinion on whether the mushrooms are doing that or it's a happy accident and we just evolved out of the same biological machine and so it's a coincidence and then we assign all this anthropomorphizing on the mushroom um, because at the same time psilocybin is a neurotoxin for insects mm -hmm. so it could be as simply as defined as the mushroom made a chemistry to prevent itself from being eaten like nicotine the tobacco plant chemical um, that's designed to kill insects so they don't eat the leaf just so happens that that toxic neurochemistry in small doses in large humans is an effect that humans like So Which also caused us to, to help propagate the, the, the plant, keeps it alive. Right. That's an amazing thought. The botany of desire, I think, was the first time that was pitched. We're like, what's the most successful plant of all time? Wheat. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. It convinced us it domesticated to plant us. it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Who's domesticating this? Yes. Back to that symbiotic relationship thing. What do mushrooms do? Okay. They work underground with the trees mining minerals. And if you're looking at a forest from a tree's perspective, mushrooms provide water, nutrients, um, immune defense, um, other things that help the forest going. But if you look at it from a mushroom perspective, what do trees do? They're solar panels collecting photons, turning them into carbon chains, and then distributing them down to the mushroom. And the mushroom selectively chooses who lives and who dies, who gets resources. Mushrooms are literally tree farmers they're solar panel farmers to collect the sun's energy so the mushrooms Brandon, can... Brandon, we, we got to turn this into like an, anim, an animation or something. <laughs> like you've just anthropomorphized all these different these are characters. All, Mycologists like, hate me for this. These are the all market processes you're describing though. Mm -hmm. Which is fucking mm -hmm. incredible. So back to praxeology all the way down. Exactly. The study of action in this case, not human action. But. Mushroom action. So if I'm... Okay, I haven't read this book. Uh, the... the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, maybe is what it's called. Mm -hmm. By John Marco Allegro. 
which is making the case that psilocybin is catalyst to Christianity, something like that. Yeah, exactly. But if we are chasing the mushroom and the mushroom's chasing us, then that's got to become something, right? <laughs> like, what, what, what did that become? I, I think the origins of modern religion are based in ancient humans taking psychedelics and having a direct religious experience and finding meaning from that, sharing that experience, pursuing it. And then eventually um, the Roman Catholic Church saw all these hippie Jesus freaks doing drugs in the basement in a decentralized way, meeting God outside of political structures, which was a huge deal at the time. The Roman Church said, no, 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 this decentralized stuff's got to stop. Christianity is now a Roman Catholic thing. Um, the sacrament that used to get you high is now a piece of bread. Um, and now you're under our rule. So they replace the, the drug with the token, come to us for the, for the wisdom, and use it as a control structure. If you, look at, shit coin. Yeah, if you look at etymology, <laughs> the whole... <laughs> exactly. No, it's an, we should marinate in that for a second. <laughs> it's just what it felt like. It is. It's a giant. This episode of High Hash Rate brought to you by FTX. (laughs) For those of you who want to give away your wealth. Is that a Binance subsidiary? (laughs) It might be. After due diligence. So if mushrooms were a decentralized way to have a new perspective and to better understand the universe, and if the universe (laughs) is nothing more than or god is nothing more than the laws of the universe then the mushrooms gave us a pathway to learn about god bitcoin seems to inspire this return to the laws of physics the laws of mathematics using the physical structures tethered tethering our ideas to reality I find that when I talk, we talk to a lot of people that uh, Bitcoin has been a catalyst for them to learn about God, to learn about the laws of the universe and to value those very fundamental laws of the universe. So it's like these decentralized technologies or these decentralized emergent properties or phenomenon are constantly popping up to kind of be a signal to us to go back to that signal. To that path to return to truth to return to truth and to, to start getting rid of that that worship of self i think it's becoming sort of like a, a pattern interrupt or a you know a glitch in the matrix mm-hmm. where if you interact with it enough you start to see the fiat world or the water we swim in with a little more skepticism and you start to believe that maybe the the consensus reality is kind of bullshit and then you say well if i don't have to get distracted by this fake game of culture, which is not our friend. Um, Then you start to go back to what humans do without culture driving. And humans desire meaning. Humans fundamentally look for those things. I think um, like if you're in a a tribal situation and you don't have such complex social systems, I think you have more time to think about the big things. And people are on average a lot more spiritual, a lot more religious. Um, I think Bitcoin sort of acts as that disruption point and allows you to yeah, have less bullshit um, so you can start to go back to what our instinct is, which is find truth, so find meaning. 
on that with okay is it possible that the state is an externalization of the default mode network we may have talked about this before i think it makes sense the default default mode network is like newish neuroscience which is like our standard waking reality it's like our brain is a bunch of separate parts that are all communicating and our standard waking mode is like the the standard connection of all these different nodes. And we do it so much that it creates a deep rut. And people would say anxiety or depression might be because you're, you're stuck in your default mode network and you're not allowing meaning to come in. You're not feeling awe, you're not feeling connection, right? Instead you're in this like anxious, manic, rigid, rigid state. And now that's the individual, right? If you take a psychedelic, it disrupts the default mode network goes back to harmony, you know, you start over. It's yeah. like clearing your memory cache. Yeah, exactly like your memory cache. But if we scale up, one second, if we scale up to humanity, to your point, a, a rigid, controlled, centralized state is like an overactive default state machine, mode network. Right, the state yeah. machine. State yeah, machine. exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean. That's what I was trying to communicate earlier. They is us. The state they mm. is, is us at any given moment in time if we don't find a way to disrupt that default state. That normie, what is a normie? A normie is they, they it's the default state, the NPC. They're just operating off of that default state and they don't break past that shell. A larger percentage of people on our planet are govern me harder daddy than I thought. I expected the number was small. The number is the absolute majority. After watching the, the COVID authoritarianism and the cheering for that without a shred of thought, this deeply saddens me. Like there's not a lot of people out there who are willing to be brave, think for themselves, speak it, go against their, their social structures, which comes at a high cost, but Which I damn. bet mirrors the decline in religion generally, right? Like people are imputing that religious impulse to the state rather yes. than traditional wisdom traditions and i think the key with religion is that religion in my opinion is this impulse that we have some other organisms have but especially us and it should be a felt firsthand experience it is something that you do it is an action you are going to meet god through fasting through dancing through silence through pain through mushrooms through whatever and that firsthand experience is what changes you um, feeling it. It's ineffable. You can't read about a mushroom trip or a religion in a book and get the same feeling. And so when religion is firsthand, it's decentralized, it's hard to stop, it disrupts power structures, it empowers individuals. That sucks for a centralized entity. Um, but that's the, poor, that's the good stuff. Now our religions have no spirituality, have no God left. The God is a wafer. And we use smoke and mirrors to create ambiance, which actually does help. Like you can go into a church situation and have goosebumps because it is a lot of smoke and mirrors and placebo matters, but it's not the same as having the sacrament for yourself. And if awe, if uh, beauty breaks that default state, fear brings you back. And what do, like, when people think of religion, right, like some people who are listening to this might be atheists and they get angry that we talk highly or positively about religion, but we're not talking about church or organized religion. We're talking about like that decentralized religion. But what do those 
organized religions often do to maintain control. They use fear, the fear of hell, uh, to draw you to that state of, uh, that, you know, that default state that we talked about. And breaking it requires being able to overcome that fear and to, to go into wonder and awe. If, the, if that mirroring is correct between the default mode network and the state, then Bitcoin is definitely fucking psychedelic. Exactly right. Because it's the same, right? The psychedelics disrupt default mode network. Yep. Bitcoin is disruptive to the state, if we're right. I guess there's, there's two ifs in there, I suppose. Yep. But I don't know. That, that, so that makes sense on, if those ifs are correct. And I feel like that relates to the symbiotic relationship we talk about between man and tool. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, yes, yes. we exist in complex systems, right? Everything is a complex system. Everything is feedback loops. We are patterns, the table's a pattern, the phone's a pattern. What did Tesla say? If you want to understand the universe, think in terms of vibration, frequency, and energy, right? It's all energy vibrating at different patterns. So when two patterns come together, they're mutually influential, whether that's man and money, or whether that's this other situation, which I've already forgotten now on my diatribe, but... With the default mode network. The default mode network. So if there's... A microcosm of the default mode network doesn't there have to be a macrocosmic reflection of it in the I think, collective. I think we should assume that the answer is always yes to that question, right? Yeah, not that it has the same characters. If yeah. like it's obviously emergent properties and all the stuff, but in general, it seems like there'd just be a layer to that that would be similar. I think the the idea of that being a fractal system is what we should assume. Exactly. Yeah. Fractal system. Yeah, the same properties that influence the micro influence the macro. Yes. Right. Yes. And I think that that makes it intuitively feels right. Um, I think, yeah, I think we'd be naive to assume that that's not true. And I, what it reminds to me is how, <laughs> how feeble and limited humans are, even though we're amazing, we're extremely amazing. But if you look at the grand spec, like if there's a spectrum of reality, what percentage of it do you think we see today or we're capable of seeing? What percentage do you think we're capable of seeing if we maximized our hardware and software today? Like, is it 1% of all of reality we're able to perceive? 50%? Don't we only visualize 5% of the light spectrum? Yeah. So there's a proxy, right? Like we vision, the thing that we're best at. Uh, maybe not best at, but it's our our best sense. We only see five percent of the light that yep. there is. So butterflies maybe have fifty times the visible light spectrum as we do. Wow, they have more cones than us. Yeah, we have three, and butterflies have between like eight and eighteen. Wow. And the mantis shrimp has twenty three, and it's mantis not shrimp. linear. It's so cool. It's super linear or exponential. Yeah. So like. Yeah, they're seeing a world that we can't even put on a screen. It wouldn't even make sense to us. Yeah. It's so fucking cool. And his his important sight is there's animals like bats who don't even have sight, but they are still able to navigate the same physical reality that we're able to navigate. They're able to fly without smashing into buildings and into trees, and they don't even have sight. So, oh, sorry, I finished. No, go ahead. Question about that. And I don't know the answer to this. What does a bat see, right? A bat shoots out sound waves. It bounces back. Does a bat see a three-dimensional grayscale reality? Is that what's in their mind eye? Or do they have the ability to interpret a fast ping means don't go there and a long ping means it's open space? Like, do they then visualize it? We have visual cortex, right? We turn everything mm-hmm. into fake reality based on all this 
central nervous system sense bullshit. We turn mm. it into a movie. Does a bat see a movie? Does a bat see a grayscale? Like, why do they have eyes not to see, right? They see something, no? They're pretty much blind. Pretty much. When they fly, they shoot sound out of their face yeah, and yeah, it bounces yeah, back, creates a map. Yeah. Sound reveals the what, same what the structures that. Eyes. The eyes are left over from their days as mice or something? Well, they're in the night, right? You can't see at night, so the lights, the sonar is better at night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a it would be a vestigial organ. Vestigial, yes. Right, yes. where like left it's a over. holdover of a previous evolutionary yeah. strategy. Like we have a tailbone, we don't have tails anymore. Right. We used to think our appendix was a vestigial organ because we were too arrogant to assume that it didn't have a, a purpose. And what is it? What's its, its purpose? I don't remember now, but it's like it, a toxic waste dump, I think. Yeah, and it, I think it regulates hormones a certain mm. way. But going back to what percentage of humans know, we don't know shit about the body. Mm. Like 100 years ago, a president died because we thought when he was sick, we should cut him and just bleed him right. out. Right. <laughs> you know, that's like not that long ago. And so now, now we're so arrogant, we're like, oh, we definitely know the body now. Like, but the most fundamental part of human existence is consciousness, and we don't understand that at all. Not even a shred. Right. No we clue. Yeah, we understand how to. It's a word almost like God. It's almost like a placeholder for the thing we <laughs> right. don't understand. It, yeah, that's why God shrinks as human knowledge advances, and it it's, it's, takes less of a place mm. in what we don't. But then we come across a new discovery. And we realize what we don't know, and God gets bigger. Are these spicy? No. Okay. Un poquito. This one's spicy. Just the cheese, yeah. Uh, it's not bad. Should we just well, shall we wrap it up with something? Wrap it up? Let's wait for Brecky. Yeah, let's summarize. Like, find something to just like <laughs> not just be like, where'd Brecky go? That's the end. <laughs> well, I did want to be like, I just, I wanted to release the sort of. Uh, pressure of recording, so I wanted to just have uh, like a, just a just like a, just record it. No, we can end it with him saying that God is what we don't understand. <laughs> that's true. I mean, obviously, we cut because that's a yeah. You don't have to include the last rambling as we decide whether to continue or not. <laughs> yeah, that is an option. What did we talk about, Mike? Yeah, we did talk about we leave in the stuff that adds value. <laughs> well, we, we often talk about this is true. We often talk about the pressures of recording well I often bring this up and what what recording something brings what it does it like by capturing something it it's like uh prescribing value to what you're talking way, about I guess right you, you sort yeah. of like ascribe some sort of value to it so and then you it holds in time now if you could capture something digitally it holds much better so I think it's the same impulse that humans have biologically to live forever as long as possible to reproduce. And so I think a picture or a digital recording is sort of an attempt to preserve, you know, it's seeking immortality at the bottom of it. Well, I've never thought about it from like the genetic perspective. Like I've always like thought of it like, yes, humans want to be immortal, but I never really, really connected that to our our biological need to survive. Norbert Wiener, the father of cybernetics, described the organism as a message. So your DNA is just the blockchain of your survival strategies propagating yes. through 
blood, flesh, and bone across Bingo. the line. It's Dawkins' selfish gene as well. Yeah. Where the primary unit in evolution is not a human or a species or a community. It is your literal DNA. Your genetic package yeah. is using our body, is telling our body to grow a strong arm, a throwing arm, to hold your breath, to fight a lion, to reproduce. That's all just programming from our DNA to get mm -hmm. to a new body, to re replicate itself. Right? We're, a, we're just meat suits. And you live to perpetuate even against your own mental best interests. Like if you're mm -hmm. paralyzed from the neck down or you're 90 years old and you can't get out of a chair, you can't see, you can't think, but you're, you still have that will to live. It's like this hijacked evolutionary instinct to keep going. Yeah. Even at the, you know, yeah, like the expense of your mental health and your sanity. There's a sinister type of genetics, which is that it, it gives you an advantage early in life and it takes something from you later in life. So you might be like jacked, deep voice, very, very able to reproduce when you're young, and then you get like heart disease, you die when you're 50. And if you think about that type of gene, like what genes are persistent long-term, that's a really sticky gene because it guarantees a bunch of kids Genetics don't give a shit if you right. die later. You already made your mark, baby. You got 10, 20 of them things. Um, and then you die. <laughs> and so that's kind of shitty, right? That's us sort of being abused by genetics. We wouldn't choose that if we could. Genetic economics, right? Exactly what it is. Cold, hard reality. But that also comes down to like what is your like reason for being like if like it comes down to how you view the world like if you are if you have those genes and you're going to die at 45 but like you're extremely virile and like spread your genetics far and wide before that point if you're upset when you die at 45 that's because you have linked your reason for being your happiness to something other than this what you are kind of true so um, hopefully the genetics would then also teach you to be to, happy at that point. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is I think that's not passed along, right? Mm. Which goes back to Or it to can brave... be altered by by society, by societal norms, like by Correct. religions. You have an, by a minority whatever. strategy that society tells you is wrong, mm. right? So you assume it's wrong. It goes back to Huxley's Brave New World, right? Where he's trying to engineer a society, the bad guys, whatever, the centralized power, they're trying to engineer a society where people fit into different roles, but they actually like their role. Right, so when they're born, they go through some genetic mutations to say you're an alpha, beta, gamma, you're a laborer, you're an economist, you're an administrator, whatever, and we love our role, right? So we're all blissfully happy in our little machine parts, and the leaders can kind of just like, how many how many architects do we need next year? You know, how many laborers do we need? That's where the babies go. Mm -hmm. um, I just read read it again. It's a, such an interesting book. It is. The way they kind of program is like everyone, if you're like an alpha, you are extremely happy to be an alpha and would never want to be a beta. But it, like if you're a gamma, it's the same thing. It's just like, oh, how could I be one of those like snot-nosed alphas, you know? Like, you know, everyone fits into their part and they love it. I just, um, I just finished a book called Shogun, which is like this like 50 hour I did the audiobook so it was like 50 hours of of like audiobook about the 1600s in Japan um and the whole idea of that society like like bushido running through it like people committing ritual suicide to honor like 
the people who did commit ritual suicide like weren't scared when they did it like they were honored to do it like it was like the culmination of their life and like to me it's like to us it's probably so alien so foreign like how could somebody want to do that but if that's what made you happy if that's what made you fulfilled like what's the role they were playing ultimately this i've been thinking about this a lot um so just a, for instance a private property right private property is basically live action role playing right we're just pretending that it's a real thing you don't actually have the exclusive right to the assets that you produced or justly acquired we just all pretend and to the extent that we all pretend it's a real thing but to the extent anyone defects then it's not a real thing so it just makes me think that these samurais they're just living and they're inhabiting a different story right in their world, their incentive structure, this ritual suicide was for whatever reason the highest thing they could do in that imaginary, imaginal game, the role they're playing. So it's crazy how humans do that. Like we think, like having a four-year-old, I see her playing dress up and she's in character mode and all this stuff all the time. We don't stop doing that. We keep doing that. Right, like your your role in your organization, that's just everyone pretending that you're that role. Your role in your nation, like we're it's just live action role playing, the whole fucking thing. So what are like these Trippy. in fiat world there's these bloated bureaucracies, whether corporate or public, where we create all these new roles that don't need to exist because we're trying to give people a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose whether whether where none exists. But it's all, it's all pretend. What does meaning mean? <laughs> That's one of those words, that, one of those symbols that everyone has to find out for themselves, I guess. You have the basic fundamental, the, 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 the meaning of life is to, if you're a man, to be a father, to take it to, you know, if you use Christianity as like a like Christ dying on the cross, you're sacrificing some element of self for your duty to your family, to your community, to your to your role. You're making that sacrifice. But how do you determine what is worth sacrificing yourself for? Doesn't it come back down to biology? Like meaning is a like a strategy uh, evolutionary pressure is it not or do we think meaning is divorced from evolutionary pressures because hmm. in my opinion do we biologically need to find meaning or is it the stupid byproduct of life itself and it has nothing to do with any of it exactly I, is it I don't evolutionary know. pressure is, or not what is the, the the feminism movement the gender genderless non-binary what it's a rejection of the evolutionary duty I will, I don't want to be a wife. I don't want to be a father or a mother. I don't want to be a woman just because I was born this way. It's like this reject, mm. this role that was assigned to me by the universe. I reject it. Yeah, it's a symbol of. I want my a, own meaning. It's a consequence of man assuming that they evolved out of biology and into gods themselves, which is detached from reality, which is detached from energy, which is all political games. But it's just not true so failing to propagate the genetic message further in time it's funny i was thinking 
meaning in a totally other way, which is like a tracking number. You know, you have the fucking FedEx shipment, they give you this long alphanumeric code, it's a tracking number. You change one character in that, that tracking code is meaningless. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But with the right sequence of codes and the right database, then it's mapped to the thing so it has meaning, it tells you where your package is going in space. But if it's rejection of the evolutionary duty to propagate your the message that is your DNA onward in time, it's kind of the same thing in a way. Your life is meaningless. It's like keep, you're right, you need, that is the meaning of life, is to propagate the message, just like the tracking numbers trying to propagate the message of where your fucking package is at. Right, so then what biology would do, what our genes would do, what biology would do, was would make reproduction in our case, in the circle, becoming a father, it would make that the most meaningful experience that this mm -hmm. biochemistry Which bag could produce. Right. And I definitely believe it is. With yeah. And 11 week old at home. And the, yeah. the idea that a man can get pregnant, uh, we all reject that with our just with our experience. PayPal. But how do you Minus how do you how do you make that so? You you you, ha you might you have to use that political power that fiat by decree. This is what it is. And everybody can see that it's not true, but the what, law says what, what the that's what this is. Thing? Is, that, is that a thing? Yeah. I There's mean, an emoji, man. It's real now. Right. Yeah, I've seen the memes, but... There's an emoji. It's real now. <laughs> that, that's a, an absurd thing that that becomes an arbiter of what is and what is not. <laughs> is there it's actually a pregnant crazy. man emoji on my phone? Yes. The, yeah. <laughs> it, it's is there actually a man emoji? <laughs> Can we get an edited emoji? <sighs> Inventory, God damn it! But is that not changing the Overton window when an iPhone user can put a pregnant man image? Does it not socialize it? Does it not culturally yeah. update us? Yes, of course it it's does. It's a psychological operation for sure. It's all well, psyop. Maybe it's malicious. Maybe it's not. But, but is, yeah, is it actually maybe, maybe a not. man who's pregnant emoji, or is it a, an emoji of a pregnant person who looks masculine? <laughs> and, I think what? the answer is, I don't want to answer that, because no matter what, I'm a racist Nazi. Malice malice is not determined by, well, maybe malice is, but the harmfulness of it is not based on the intent. But if it hijacks the minds of society to reject the meaning of life, I would consider that harmful. Whether it was meant to be or not is kind of irrelevant. If it destroys human civilization, so maybe nature, fundamental ethics. Nature has wired us a little bit, perhaps. I don't know if this makes sense. In light of our ability to assign ourselves roles, that if we assign ourselves roles that are incompatible with our evolutionary impulse, that we find our life to be meaningless. What if it's that? It's like a corrective mechanism. A human being who has found meaning has a better chance of propagating their genes. Yeah. And a content individual is going to get laid more often. Oh, wow. So they're more fit for purpose. So meaning is... Fit for duty. That's what you say in the Air Force. Fit for duty. <laughs> but I think the key is that the genes want to reproduce. So I think the, the carrot is the meaning that you feel after you do your genes duty. Mm -hmm. Right? If you got the reward for finding meaning before reproducing, that would betray the genes' ambitions, right? Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like so a woman in her 30s, this is common wisdom, I don't know if it's true or not, but a lot of women say, my biological clock is ticking, I feel the desire to reproduce. Right. What is that? Mm -hmm. That is your genes 
creating this condition, if not reproduction by this biological time, then we're going to make you feel like shit. Mm -hmm. What is a man or a woman or a child feeling left out because they didn't get invited to a birthday party? That's the same feeling as being ostracized from your tribe, which what does that signify in a evolutionary tribal situation? That means gene death. Mm -hmm. The literal worst thing that could possibly happen to our genes is not reproduce. If you get ostracized, that's instant gene death. So it feels fucking horrible when, when we feel left out. You don't want to be canceled. Oh, exactly. What are we doing? We're leveraging the collective to make someone feel ostracized, to make them feel the worst possible way they could feel the way that they won't propagate their genes. I've been getting a lot of meaning in life out of seeing people get value from the podcast or writing. So I wonder if that's related to where... Even if you're not propagating your genes, like your most fundamental message, you could propagate another message that you just think is just or good or moral, like Bitcoin, and you get some commensurate satisfaction. Maybe not the same degree, but... I think it comes back to like the ego and the self, because like early man doesn't know what a gene is, you know? Like the, it's the idea that you will survive it through your children. So I think it all comes down to like... Passing. If you're an artist, if you're a podcaster, if you're whatever you do, if you create something that will outlive you, like it feeds that same uh, biological drive in a way. Yeah, I mean, passing on your genes isn't just passing on your physical genes. It's passing on your values and your ideas you know. and your message to the next generation who, if you raise them right, will continue to pass that message down. Correct. You're training your offspring to have offspring. Right. You're programming yeah. the, the iteration of yourself that will continue. Yep. Just catch them up. Fucking amazing. It is good. <laughs> and to your point with what am I getting out of the, the podcast, I don't know if this is true, but what came to me is that you're essentially fulfilling a fatherly-like role, mm, which is oh. teaching, seeking wisdom. And instead of directly your genes, you're just educating a bunch of people who listen to your podcast and it feels the same as educating Pete. You know what feels really good is when they tell you they got a, you created value in their life by whatever means, right? They're, oh, I was in the situation and I listened to them. Now we're in the situation. Thank you. You're like, fuck me. That is the best feeling in the world. It's not actually benefiting my genes in any, well, I guess sort of indirectly that I'm, Doing it as a, for a job and they're listening. Social status also. Right, social status, right. Which means you get more access to female. Well, there's something about... Ooh, that's interesting. Oh, that's, that's there's interesting. something about that moment where they say it created value in their life that you... I guess it's a em, empathy thing, I guess, right? You're just feeling... I don't know. Maybe we're, talk, we're using the word gene too literally and it's just more of a... A piece of you, whether it's biological or an idea that you passed on, you're Any still memory passing. of you. Right, exactly. Yeah. Any trace of you from the past that will carry on. Because the more I the more minds that you are in, the more likely they are to pass your message. I think what that just teased out is the transition between genetic evolution, which is we live in an environment whatever adapt adaptations we have indicate how well we are to reproduce. So genes travel over time, depending on how fit they are to their environment. And then we created a transition point where cultural evolution or mimetic evolution or ideas 
are like a million times faster at reproducing so that we're no longer really stressed by our environment. Our genetic path is now determined by our social game, this made-up reality, right? Mimetic world um, instead of genetic. Um, and so, yeah, in a way, you're passing on ideas of yourself, which are memes, which are versions of you, which is something we care about, similar to how our genes want to be reproduced. Our ideas are now right. Um, what is everybody doing on social media, Twitter? They're competing for their ideas to be the ones that are spread. They're creating, they're creating memes, they're creating ideas, they're putting their message out there and trying to, they're competing with everyone else to spread that, that information. Does this make us an intermediate life form of some kind? What do you mean by that? Well, like, did we exist to give birth to the organisms that we call ideas? If we create... This is what Matt Ridley in The Rational Optimist talks about this in chapter one, right? Ideas competing, recombining, reproducing, having sex. I mean, it's... If you get it down to brass tacks and we are just genetic code, then we're just an idea really too. So if our physical, if our physical body's limitations to spreading throughout the universe preclude us from biologically going out there, well, our creating our artificial intelligence, sending out radio waves, we're overcoming those biological limitations to spread throughout the broader universe. Yeah, it's the same symbiosis of our tool. We create tools, tools create us. We created this super brain, the super brain creates a super er brain. And then that changes the genetic path of our meat suit to something that's more suitable for the future. What's more important? I don't know the answer to this question. What's more important? Would you rather send biological humans to the edges of the universe or would you rather spread but human values are values to the edge of the universe. What's more important, do you think? I mean, I don't know. What was the first one? Well, would you rather send like our biological, you know, who we are to the edges of the universe or our values? What's more important? I don't know if you can separate values and action. That's a good point. If there's nobody to actually enforce that virtue, that truth. No one there to enact it. Right. I think that's an easy question though. Like. Let's use Star Trek, the Star Trek universe. Would you, you go out and you encounter all these alien species. Do you start the Federation of Planets, which is bringing together diverse peoples across the universe with shared values? Or do you attack everyone and dominate them and literally bring your people across the universe? Right. It's, if you think the the receiver of your message is a good medium to continue and to be that action then maybe that's it's more energy efficient to influence well it's like what is life what is humanity like what like what is val what is human what does value of human life mean does that mean you don't kill other people or does that mean you only kill the people who don't uh share your values I think what's interesting is we're talking about like philosophy of how humans should reproduce and expand as a species and what's our role. Like, are we just an intermediate species to the next one? Obviously, yes, but on what scale? And that's all intellectual. That's all us like thinking about how we want it to go. But then the other side of the coin is that I keep bringing it back to biology. The other side of the coin is that we have genetic software um, 
or I should say hardware is a better way to look at it. We have hardware from a previous time period and we're in a modern time and there's kind of a mismatch in our evolutionary needs, drives, tendencies, fears, hopes, everything. And so we can like try to engineer the future or which is what we're doing right now. Or we can kind of allow the biological reality um, to shine more. And that's a big thesis I have, which is that modernity is having all these issues related to um, bringing a caveman into New York City. That's essentially what we did. And we socialize people and we learn and we sort of adapt. But, you know, we have all these heart disease, we have anxiety, we're totally devoid of meaning, we're detached from, there's all these like diseases of modernity. And I think the simple answer is just start from what our biological meat suits, our caveman needs are, and simulate or like translate them to modernity and apply those in a new context. Get some sunshine, sleep well, have social, close social bonds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the reality is that's the answer to almost all the, the health challenges we have is just re-simulate. Like, why is yoga popular? Why are music festivals popular? I think the real answer is because we're simulating a communal environment mm. which scratches an evolutionary itch of a caveman and we don't even know it. Burning we think man. we like yoga. We think we like Burning Man. No, wow. Burning Man is a simulation of the fall harvest when all the tribes gather mm -hmm. and they show off all their good stuff. They trade, they sleep with each other's woman, they howl at the moon <laughs> and then they bunker down for wintertime. Describes Burning Man pretty well, actually. Yeah. yeah. Can't wait to go. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, it reminded me of that quote that Someone said the problem with humans is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. E.O. Wilson, e. o. biologist. Wilson. Yeah. So we're just a wreck of dissonance on multiple levels. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? Because you biologically evolve more slowly than we do institutionally, which radically underpaces technology. Yeah. We're just caught in the period of time where the biology hasn't caught up to the uh, the rest of the organism. But it's like Bitcoin, it, like getting ahead of the stock sometimes, and then the technology right. improves, and then more demand, and then technology improves again. Like, but I think the different the, the problem is that genetics evolves like on a flat line. It's really slow and linear, sort of. But culture goes like this. They're never going to reach. Right, we're going to speciate before. Our, we're never going to go back to caveman. We're going to turn into a new biological species at the rate our information evolves. Which is kind of the point. I, I mean, so evolution is kind of doing that blind search, right? Just blind search for fitness payoffs. Exactly. But we do something, I don't know, in, I don't know it's more conscious, I guess, that so we can actually purposefully pursue different areas on the fitness landscape so we can take like higher risk, higher reward fitness improvement strategies. That's kind of what innovation is. So culture is always doing that, right? It's taking this higher risk. I guess it could also do this. It could also have a cataclysmic correction, right? Culture can collapse. Happens all the time. Yeah. Right. And then and we go way that, back in our yeah. technology right. for hundreds of years right. or that's, more. And that's kind of like today's the midterm election. And what does societies and cultures constantly do? It's like a pendulum swinging from, from progressive to conservative. Because obviously we want progress. We want to continue to innovate and human ingenuity to make progress in society. But when we get too far ahead of our skis and we don't have that, the energy and the resources to accommodate that progress, 
it could eventually slide off a cliff. Yeah, exactly right. And almost always, I think, I think that that scale of progress conserve is in all you know, fractal again, from the individual to the organization to the country to the species. And I think almost all these uh, all these things like that are cyclical. And I think what's interesting right now with the uh, progressive side is that the progressive idea is that you know change more always. And that's their role is to say we need to change. Um, but the reality is that viewpoint almost always discounts the fundamental value of the way things are today. It almost never sees those, right? And that's where you have the conservative impulse, which is like, wait, 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 no, no, we have to, you're not even seeing why we did this in the first place. Don't make a change until you know what you're changing. What is proof of stake? Misunderstanding proof of work and solving a problem that doesn't exist, right? Vitalik does not understand proof of work. Very clear, he made up his mind in 2016, now he's pot committed and proof of stake, and he solved a problem that didn't exist. He unsolved the problem that Satoshi solved, and he doesn't even realize it. And then there's millions of people who think the Wonder King Booger Eater is a god because he left proof of work land, which is fundamental reality, which is power based on physics, and he created total political world again. He detached from reality, he played God, and all the little young nihilists want to believe it's true. Ethereum does have some sick marketing. <laughs> Undoubtedly good marketing. I was captivi captivated by it once. It's very seductive. Yeah. It's got a cool name, that's all you need uh -huh. to start. And they have smart contracts. <laughs> Those motherfuckers are smart. Smart contracts. Smart contracts seem to rely a lot on promises from other entities not to, Dan, to sell, Dan, not to Dan. dump. But the contracts smart. are smart. Brondo's got what plants crave. Right. <laughs> All right, guys. I, I think we. Yeah, I think we covered quite a bit of ground. We have plenty oh, of crap. content that you have to add at this time. <laughs> Obviously. I want to thank. Um, Sam Bankman Freed for providing this Beyond Meat charcuterie <laughs> and the, the vegan cheese. Sam. We got rugged. <laughs> we need to edit out all the fake meat I ate. <laughs> you see that nice glisten of seed oil glistening in the in the sun? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay. This is the best fake cheese I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Cashew coconut bliss. Yeah. Did you steal that camera from April O'Neil? <laughs> Jimmy from the tropics. I am very glad that all of you guys got that. Thanks again for listening to the High Hash Rate Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at High Hash Rate, or you can hit up Dan at Heartland Bitcoin, H-R-T-L-N-D Bitcoin, or myself, Mike, at Run Dance Bitcoin. That's all one word, Run Dance Bitcoin. If you're a fellow pleb or you just want to shoot the shit with two high Bitcoiners, reach out to us. Bye.